desire you to know you more. And Lord Jesus, the power of your resurrection is amazing. And even if we enjoy the fellowship of the saints, we know that we may also experience the suffering. But Lord, you have suffered in ways that we cannot, for your suffering is redemptive. So I pray that we will be the example, that we will see our mission is to display your character, to display your gospel, your goodness, your greatness, even to the ends of the earth. And we who meet together in this little building on a corner, oh God, may we be found faithful at your appearing, doing all that you desire us to do, growing up into the fullness of the head of the church our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Take a seat. It's good that you're back with us tonight. And uh, we are looking further at uh, the doctrine of the church tonight, the importance of the church. And, and some might say, well, we're actually uh, preaching to the choir uh, because those who uh, uh, would set aside their personal time on a Sunday evening, perhaps to uh, spend time with family, perhaps to prepare for uh, the work day tomorrow, or uh, get head start on cooking. Uh, I know our we got a frozen turkey this year, so it went into the fridge last night, and it's beginning to thaw and, and all of those things. But uh, you have set aside... Uh, a part of your uh, life tonight to come here and to be with us. And so uh, if what I present to you in just a few minutes is uh, uh, nothing more uh, than uh, uh, a refresher or reminder, then uh, it will be uh, a blessing. And I pray that it is a blessing uh, for all of us. Um, We... uh, want to welcome you, and I'm looking around to see if we have any guests with us. We do have some that are guests, maybe family, but most everybody's home folks, so uh, I want you to spend 30 seconds, 30, not 30 minutes, 30 seconds, and I want you to stand up, go ahead and do that, and I want you to find three people that you have not yet spoken to and welcome them to our worship tonight. Find your way back now to your seats. At the end.
All right, I know that you've been warmly welcomed and are continuing to fellowship. And it is a joy to, for us to be able to share together. And uh, some are not always or often able to be with us. And Tom Daughtry's down here, and it's always good that he's able to come and to be with us. And, and I would encourage you to be in prayer for several, several among our uh, church family. Continue to pray, of course, for the Wilkes and for Andy and, and that situation that is there. I would ask you to pray for Kathy Dale, for her mom, for her family uh, as they prepare for the, uh, uh, the funeral of her, her father. Oh, excuse me a minute. I have a, I have a message. It says... Low sensor glucose, check blood glucose. <laughs> we have any of those uh, peppermints, those round ones. Just bring me one, please, and I'm going to chew it up. We have a bowl full. Yeah, give me the one in your mouth, Gene. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one I want right there, that little, that little round one right there. Oh, man. I feel like Santa Claus. Let me just, at the Christmas parade, you know. All right. It is seldom, very, very rare that I step into the pulpit and my blood glucose says that it's low. Very rare. All right. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. <laughs> yeah, it could be a short night. Could be incredibly long. <laughs> Acts chapter 11. As we're looking at the importance of the church, and it ought to be important to us. And that's what we really want to zero in on tonight. But Acts chapter 11, have you had a chance to find it? Look down in verse 19. Because we have talked about how the persecution causes the gospel to go. And it says, And those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, and that, of course, you will remember he was martyred in Jerusalem, and then they began to scatter out of fear. Though the persecution that rose over Stephen, those people traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Siren, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, those are the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God and was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church 
and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And I was inclined, actually, to just uh, uh, exhort you through the exposition of this little passage. But I want us to just look at it for a moment to see how it is that the church grows and expands. How it is that the gospel has reached to the Hellenists, the Gentiles. They were Greeks. We are who knows what we are. But the gospel has reached to us, and they became a part of the church. Now, the report had to go to Jerusalem first, because that was where the planting of uh, the Spirit of God planted the first church. And, And so they sent someone to check out to see if these things were so. And upon arrival... Barnabas, who was a good man, you remember, you've heard of him. His name was Joseph. He was a Levite of Cyprian birth. So they sent a, 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 a Levite, a Jew, but nevertheless, he had been in Cyprus. He had been around a lot of the Gentiles. And so he came and it says he saw the grace of God. What does that mean? It means that he saw the church exhibiting the traits of, of, of what God intends the church to be. Doing what God intends the church to do. And he saw this and that this was taking place in the life even of these Greeks. Not only was he a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And because he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was a man full of faith. And the gospel continued to go forth, and the Lord continued to add people. It says a great many people were added to the Lord. And we might have thought uh, added to the church, but they were added to the Lord. And the people who were meeting were the church. And he went and he went to get Saul. And Saul, who became Paul by name, of course, he came and they ministered together there and they met with the church for a whole year and they just taught to people. They discipled the people. They poured the word of truth into the people. They ministered among the people. And it was there in Antioch that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, were first called Christians, Christians. It was important. The gathering of the church was important. The gospel was going forth, but disciples were being made and they were growing up in their faith as the Spirit of God had moved and come among them. And Barnabas recognized that. And he knew that he needed help with the ministry. And he sent for this one whose name was Saul. The one who everybody questioned, the one who had been a murderer of the people of the way, the followers of Jesus, the one who had arrested so many, who had been radically converted to Christ. And not everybody wanted to accept him, but Barnabas did from the beginning. And so he brings who, the one who had become the great apostle to serve with him there. 
All of the people who converted, whether it was in Jerusalem or Antioch or any of the, the, the numerous places that are described throughout the, uh, the book of Acts, all of those, every person and each one of you, upon your conversion, upon being saved, you became a member of the body of Christ, part of what is known as the, the universal church what is known as the invisible church. All those who have been redeemed of all time, uh, those who have come to Christ in faith, changed from darkness into to, to light, uh, transferred from the kingdom of, of this world's darkness into the, the, the light of the kingdom of Christ. And all of those who have been redeemed, whether they were Old Testament or those who came to faith on the day of Pentecost or any time throughout the New Testament or at any time or generation since then, all of those until Christ returns will be known as the church. But they're in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, in different places there was another manifestation of the invisible church, a visible expression, uh, the local church. And so while when Shirley Rao came to Christ, she was instantly uh, a member of, of the universal or the invisible church, at some juncture in time, her parents or, or she made the commitment or the decision to become a part of uh, the local church. This is not an automatic thing. You've got to choose to become a member of a local church, and you ought to pick a good one. And I, personally thinking, you have. We've joined together to be the body of Christ, to do and be about the mission that Josh told us about last week, and, and, and to do the things and to minister to one another. And we want to look at some of those things, but... The, there's a great concern, and it comes out in Life in the Father's House in, 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 in this chapter, and, and, and I want us to discuss it briefly because a lot of people think joining a local church is optional. It's optional. Is it? Is it optional? Well, I, I want us to look. I think it is, it, it is a choice of which local church, but I believe that it is not optional. I believe that every, uh, and, and I'm not alone, and I'm going to give you a litany of people who agree that membership in the local church is important. But to an increasing number of professing believers... People who name the name of Christ, uh, local church membership is not necessary. In 2011, in an issue of Life Actions Ministries magazine, it's called Revive. Perhaps you've seen that. Perhaps you get it. I do. Uh, the, the headline read, 20 million Americans say they are Christian, but they simply don't want to be part of the church. 20 million. In our uh, church handbook, not church, uh, the Exploring Covenant Baptist Church notebook, which uh, many of you have already received and, and others will be receiving them as we go back through that, uh, there's a quote from uh, John, uh, Joseph H. Uh, Hellerman. And he writes, 
We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or family. Our culture has powerfully socialized us to believe that personal happiness and fulfillment should take precedence over the connections we have with others in both our families and our churches. We have become an extremely self-centered culture where the individual sees himself, sees herself, as the most important thing, even to the exclusion of of their own blood family and certainly to the uh, exclusion of the spiritual family. And so I want us to look at just a few reasons. And and as I said, this could serve as a reminder, but this also, I hope, will help you put some things in your arsenal so that when someone comes to you at work or maybe a member of your family or, or someone that you know, and they come to you and they say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't want anything to do with the local church. I want you to understand some of their rationale, and then I want you to be able to explain to them the importance of church membership. That's what we want to accomplish in just the next three hours. Ooh, got to hurry. So, some people say, well, the reason I don't want to be a part of a local church is it's never mentioned, church membership is never uh, mentioned in Scripture. And so they take this book the Bible, and they kind of take it like an encyclopedia, and they're looking for a chapter and a verse that says, you must go and join a local fellowship. And then that would settle it for them. But the writing of the books of of, of the New Testament, uh, it it was written into a particular set of, of, of circumstances, historical circumstances, and each one related to the writer and each one related to the recipients. And and the reason that the New Testament doesn't directly say you must join a local church is that it just wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue. I mean, when you go through and you read uh, about the church, it, it refers in Scripture to, to several bodies. It refers to the local body, and that's who we are. It, it refers to a regional body, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then, of course, the universal body of Christ. So as you go to Scripture, and you can, you can find this in Romans chapter 16 and verse 5 and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, and time won't allow me to, to read all of these to you, but they typically met mostly in homes. They were house churches, and so those were local churches. And there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about it here as we progress. Regionally, there was a city church. It was a city church. The Church of Rome, uh, the church uh, in Corinth, the church here that we just read about in Antioch. And so you take the church in Rome as an example. How many people came to faith in Christ on the day of Pentecost after the preaching of Peter? At least 3,000 souls, right? 
The Lord added to their number 3,000 souls. Were there more people saved after that? Incredible numbers. Thousands more. Thousands more. And so, do you think that all, let's just say there were 5,000. You think all 5,000 of those people met together on the first day of the week to worship? No. It wouldn't have happened. Rome wouldn't have allowed it. It just couldn't take place. It would have had to have gone some massive place or moved outside the city for all of that to take place. And so it's really not likely that they worship together. And so there was a city church, a church at Jerusalem, that was divided into house churches. And yet there was this unity in the city church, even a, a common government. Uh, Philippians 1, 1, Paul writing says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so you had a plurality of local churches, each with overseers and deacons, but they came together in their thinking, in their heart, in their, in their minds. I, I took that little section there from uh, John Frame's Systematic Theology. There's a unity. Now, we have entered into an era of denominationalism. And that is unheard of in many places. I remember, and I've probably shared this with you, and maybe did so lately. Uh, uh, I can remember going uh, to uh, Royal Buffet, and there were several of us, including Larry Craner, who's passing. We just remembered uh, on the anniversary of his death uh, this past week. Uh, but anyway, there was a group of us together, pastors, and, and Larry was there. And there was a man from China who was there. And he was filling out an application uh, because he wanted to go to school. And he, was, he, he understood name and he understood address and it came down and it said denomination. And he said to me, what does this mean? And first one, then another, well, we're Baptists and then there's Presbyterians. Uh, there are a lot of different denominations. And he said, we don't have that. We are Christians. We are Christians. And so uh, there is no way that the church at Valdosta, if the apostle were still around and going to write us epistle, there's no way that we could all come together and, and, and agree. I mean, we can't even hardly agree with, with other Southern Baptist churches, let alone with the Presbyterians or, or anything else, because doctrinal differences have begun to segregate us. And it won't be until we get to heaven that everybody's going to see that the Baptists were right. And so uh, there was a unity. So you had uh, the, the house churches, and then you had the city church. And then even beyond that, you had uh, 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 the regional church uh, that was uh, broad, uh, universal. Uh, and you, you look and you read of the Jerusalem Council and how they made decisions that affected all of the churches in the known world. 
And so things are, are very different now, but the, the need for the church and the task of the church remains the same. Nothing has changed. And so I want to, to share with you uh, from, from some uh, uh, writers just some statements about the necessity of church membership. Alvin McLean, and this is cited in a systematic theology uh, by uh, uh, Roland McCune, the necessity of membership in the local church is never questioned in the New Testament. It's taken for granted. Had we asked the believers of the apostolic period whether it was essential to join the church, they would not have known what we were talking about. Every believer became a member of a church. It was involved in the very profession he made in Christ. When the church went out witnessing and, 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 and they shared the truth, people were converted and they said, I want to come be with you. I want to learn the things that you have learned. I, I want to grow as you have grown. I want to be able to share the truth as you do so. Now, sadly, not everyone is welcome in every church. We have all manner of divisions that take place in our uh, uh, cultural idea. I remember uh, being at in, in, in First Baptist in, in Cuthbert, and uh, one of the women, and many of you have met her, her name is Dottie Stevens, and Dottie and Ron were our friends and mentors for, for many, many years, even following our time in Cuthbert, and we remain friends with, with Dottie. Ron has passed away, but she was working in an H&R block doing taxes, and the reason that she did that is so she could share Christ with people. And so there was a woman who came, her name was Vivian I remember Vivian quite well, African-American woman, and she was having her, her, her taxes done by Dottie, and Dottie just asked her in the course of the day, where do you go to church? And she told her, and she said, I, uh, uh, I've been going there you know, all my life. And Dottie began to share the gospel with her over a period of time, and Vivian came to Christ. And Vivian said to her, I want to go to church at your church. Because this is the first time I've heard the truth. This is the first time I haven't heard prosperity gospel. Even all those decades ago, that was what was being taught in so many churches. She said, I've never heard the word of God preached or proclaimed. It's always politics. It's always uh, this or that, social things. And so Vivian said, you'd be welcome at our church. First Baptist Church, Cuthbert Georgia. Guess who was not welcome at First Baptist Church? Oh, well, there were many of us who loved Vivian and welcomed her, but there were so many who, because of their, their racial bias, would not even desire her to fellowship on a Sunday. It's sad. And we've got to, to break down all of those barriers, even as we saw here the barrier between the Jews being the, the only Christians that were hearing the gospel to suddenly the Greeks and others were being converted. And guess what? They were brought in and they were embraced. That's what we do. 
And we don't care what their background is. We don't care what their, their, their ethnicity is. We don't care what any person's uh, socioeconomic situation is. We don't care about any of those things. We just desire people to come into Christ and grow up in their faith. That's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. And that's what we desire. And so uh, every person now who's converted needs to become a part of local church. And as you share Christ with someone at work or at school or wherever it is that you are, and they come to faith in Christ, and you ask them, Do you want to, don't you want to become a part of a church? They must say yes. And if they say, I want to come to your church, then you need to bring them. And you need to make sure that they are loved and cared for by this body. And if you see us ignoring somebody, you need to come and say, this person, this individual is not being loved. This person is not being brought in to the fellowship that is there. Other writers, Douglas Millar, uh, he's quoted in, in Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. He says, in the New Testament, there is no such person as a Christian who is not a church member. The concept of a believer who is not a member of a local church is completely foreign to Acts and the Epistles, Paul Downey. Acts and the Epistles assume that every believer would join the membership of a local church. Again, Paul Downey. John Piper said, the New Testament knows of no Christians who are not accountable. There's that word, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. Accountable members of local churches. Henry Thiessen, lectures in a systematic theology, writes, in the early church, when a person responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was added to the church. There was no question whether he ought to join the local assembly. This was taken for granted. Earl Radmacher, the nature of the church, writes, The New Testament knows of no believer who does not submit himself for baptism and join the local church. The New Testament knows of no regenerate person who is not a member of a local church. I could go on. I have more. While membership in the church is not a prerequisite of salvation, it is a necessary consequence of salvation. R.B. Kuyper. These are people from a broad theological spectrum, and we all agree together that church membership is not optional. Therefore, it is important. It is vital. And again, I, I feel like uh, we talked about this somewhat among, among the staff and the elders. I feel like we are, 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 are preaching to the crowd on a Sunday night that doesn't need to hear this. But folks, don't let the lie creep in that this time here when we are gathered, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday or any other occasion, is not important. So the question rises then, is the scripture really uh, silent on the matter of, of church membership? Well, consider this. In 1 Timothy 5, 9, there was a roll of widows that were eligible for benevolence. 
And the NASB and the NIV versions speak of them as being put on the list. But if you go to 1 Timothy 5.9 with your ESV, it says they were enrolled. And so the role was kept. Why? They didn't want anybody to fall through the cracks. They didn't want people to, 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 to be neglected or fall into neglect themselves. Not only does the Lord Christ require of those who are saved that they unite with the church, he himself joins them to the church. And the reference that is made in Acts 2.47 is unmistakably the visible church. Not only do we see the adding of individuals to the roster, to the list, uh, to the membership, if you will, of the local church in the New Testament, but you also see people being taken out of off the, the membership role. And that takes place through church discipline. And it is in that context that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.12, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is, not the, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And that is part and parcel of, of being a part of the fellowship of church. They help us when we fall into sin. We help that person who is wandering, who has gone astray. We help to bring them back into a faithful walk. That is the intent of church discipline. But Paul makes a very clear distinction here between the outsiders and those inside the church. Well, how could the local church in Corinth excommunicate the man who was in question for having an illicit moral relationship? How could they put him out if he wasn't already a member of the church? He had to be a member of the church. Two of, of, of the harshest examples of church discipline where the Holy Spirit did the work of killing them was Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. In verses 12 and 13, you read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And then it says in verse 13, None of the rest, those who are the outsiders, the ones who had heard what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira, the one who were, ones who had heard about these miracles or perhaps even seen them, none of the rest dared join them. But they held the Christians in high esteem. They were afraid. And you know what? If you don't take church membership seriously, if you don't take your walk with Christ seriously, if you don't take the call to holiness and righteous living seriously, you ought to be afraid. We ought to live in the fear of the Lord. And yes, that means reverence, but it also means fear, for he is the one who holds life and death in his hand. There was church members right there. In Corinth, that Greek verb where it says they dared not join them, that, that word there, join, means uh, to associate with on an intimate level. They would not come into the intimacy of the church. And I want to, 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 to say that because our relationships here are to be uh, close, beautiful, caring, Loving. Those are the mandates for us. 
That, that, that's strong terminology. And it suggests a formal membership commitment to each other. The verse that most of us are familiar with is 1 Corinthians 14, which tells us God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And we take from that, and Paul was talking about worship. He was talking about uh, 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 all of the different uh, things that were going on. Some of it was very confusing. There was uh, speaking in tongues with no interpretation. There were people speaking who had not ought to be speaking and all of these things. And Paul then down in verse 40 says, all things in regard to worship, in regard to the functioning of the church, all things should be done decently and in order. And so you've got formal membership as, as a principle there because it indicates orderliness. So I don't think you can go to Scripture and say, uh, Scripture doesn't teach us about church membership. And you can take those examples to one who says the Scripture doesn't do that, and you can say, let me, let me help you. Let me help you see what the scripture really says. Secondly, uh, people are not desiring to be a part of the church because they're just unconcerned about commitment. I mean, American culture is increasingly becoming non-committal. And just as there are those who want the benefits of uh, living together without marriage, hmm, my pump's lying to me now. They want, uh, they, they want to live together, they want to cohabitate, they want to build a family, but they don't want the responsibilities of marriage. It's the same way. Uh, people don't want the benefits of the local church. They don't want uh, the, uh, the responsibilities of the local church. Oh, they would, they would take the benefits they would call you uh, several times a week and ask you to pay their electric bill. They would call you seeking help in this way or in that way, but they don't want to become a part of the fellowship of the church because there are responsibilities that are here just as there are responsibilities when you enter into a covenant relationship of marriage. Eric Lane says that the believer's relationship to the church is analogous to marriage. He likens Christians who refuse church membership to a man and a woman who merely declare themselves married and moved in together without ever submitting to a legal marriage ceremony. Here's another quote. I'm just going to go back to the other one. People who are not members of a church should be treated like unbelievers because they are treating themselves like unbelievers. Commitment. People don't want to commit. They're too busy committing to their personal things. Thirdly, the third reason that people are not, 20 million Americans and more, are not uh, desiring church membership is they don't want to be held accountable. Our culture is becoming increasingly unconcerned about commitment, but also is rising against accountability. They don't want to be held accountable for, for their actions. 
They want to be able to do what they want to do and, and, and not uh, suffer the consequences, whether that be uh, uh, driving uh, and texting while you're driving and paying the fine or whatever it may be. They, they, they don't want to be held accountable for those things. It's my phone. It's my car. I have the right to do those, those things, they say. Well, unconcern over commitment and, and, and being against accountability are areas that, that the church and, and Christians as individuals need to be anti-cultural, counter-cultural. We don't need to go along with the culture. There are just things that take place. We cannot allow uh, two men who are claiming to be married to come into the fellowship of the church. We will not accept into the church two individuals, male and female, who are cohabitating together without the benefit of, of marriage. We will not do that. You say, but you have to. The culture says so. Paul, the word of God says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. What's good, acceptable, and perfect. We need to hold people accountable. I need to be held accountable. And by becoming a, a member of a local church, one places himself, herself under the accountability of that church and then subjects himself or herself to that church's discipline. And that, that includes formative discipline where you're in Bible study and you're learning about the things of Christ and, and you're spending time together in that. And also there, there is disciplinary uh, uh, discipline, if you will. Again, a quote from Life in the Father's House. An unwillingness to join a local church is tantamount to saying we are not interested in divine accountability in our lives. Christ died for the church. He is the head of the church. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are together in this body. And under Christ, we hold each other accountable. And Christ is holding us accountable himself. It is divine accountability when the church moves to help someone return to a faithful walk. And I think this fourth reason that people don't want to join the church may be extremely strong. They had a bad experience in the church. Bad experience in the church. I had family members and, and, and they were very faithful in church and they were participating in all manner of things and all of a sudden they just quit going. And I never learned what took place in that situation. And they continued to, to, to read the scripture and to pray together. And they would meet together with a few little families here and there every little once in a while. But they were not being held accountable. They were not committed to one another. They were not a part of the local church. And something happened. 
Part of the great problem that we have with the rampant sexual abuse that has taken place in and amongst the church and those things that we must guard ourselves against vehemently set rules and standards and pass training and and draw those lines, whether it be with children or women or or whatever it, it might be, is someone was abused by someone that they trusted in the church a long time time ago. And folks, that's just an abomination. Woe be unto those. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Woe be unto those through whom the stumbling blocks come. And I know that Dante taught that there were many levels of hell. But I believe Jesus was saying that those who cause innocence to stumble away from the faith and not come into the faith, those, for them, hell is the hottest. The torture is the worst. And so it it should be. But folks, people cannot say... uh, just because there was something wrong then that, that they, they don't have the responsibility to do what's right. So you go to an eye doctor and he messes up one of your lenses that he's putting in your eye. What do you do with the other one? You just let it go? No, you find a different doctor. Yeah, there are abusive places. God forbid that we are ever one But when someone is hurt, they have a responsibility to continue on in the church. None of these reasons are biblical or good. And so you and I who are here, we have committed ourselves to membership of this little church. And so we have committed ourselves to various responsibilities. And I want to remind us of those responsibilities tonight. And I'm going to do so from life in the Father's house, but I'm also going to do it from our own bylaws as we have just a few minutes left. First of all, you are committing to assembling together with the congregation. You are committing to gathering with us, to coming Together, Acts chapter 14, verse 27. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 says that they met together daily from house to house. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. We could go on. You're committing to, to supporting the work and the ministry of the church financially. Because all that you have and all that you are belongs to the Lord and we take what he has granted us, what he has loaned to us, and we pour it back into the ministry of the church. I've known preachers who say, well, I draw my salary from the church. I am not going to give. I'm sorry. It is incumbent upon every member of the church, no matter what his or her office is, what his or her spiritual gift is, to support the ministry of the church. It just is. Each one of us, as a part of the fellowship of Christ, is to serve. Every one of us, in some way, in some capacity, in accordance with the way that we have been gifted. And some would say, well, I can't serve because I'm I'm not a teacher. Folks, we need people who just love other people and are willing to serve. 
I thought this last week, I was uh, called Miss Harriet to come and see her. And uh, be sure and pray for her. Uh, she has uh, a mass, and it's going to have to be dealt with in some way, shape, or form. So I called, and, and a voice that it wasn't hers answered her, her phone, and I instantly assumed it was her daughter, Bonnie. But then I thought, well, wait a minute, Bonnie's teaching school. And the voice came back, Pastor, this is Kathy Dale. And she was there. And while I came to visit, she changed the sheets and she was just busy serving. Now, Kathy's a good teacher too, and she teaches our children. I'm not taking that away, but I'm saying here is one whose father was approaching quickly the need to go into the hospital with pneumonia and now has passed away. But here she was giving of herself in service to this woman who needed some help. I don't care who you are or what you do. Somebody said there are no pew potatoes. We need to be serving in whatever way, in whatever capacity we can. We need to be fellowshipping together. And, and that's seen throughout the course of the New Testament by seeing uh, uh, what has been called the one another commands. Admonish one another. Love one another. Forbear and forgive one another. Confess to pray, for, confess to one another and pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be hospitable to one another. Edify and encourage one another. That's what this is all about. This is not about you and what you get out of this. Because I tell you, if every individual member of this church is serving and fellowshipping and doing these one another things, then there will be no needs that go unmet. It's, it's like the husband-wife relationship when they commit to 100% loving and caring for this one, and this one is committed to 100% loving and caring for this one, then both of their needs are met. It is a 100%, 100% proposition that they are entering into in the covenant of marriage. And so when I let my wife down in some area, she rises and, and, and overcomes that. And if she ever did let me down in some area, which she has never done, I would rise to take care of the slack that is there. We remember one of another, Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says. And so we've committed ourselves to membership in a body of believers. And this is important. What, who we are and what we do is vital for the health of individual Christians and for the cause of Christ. Because I'm going to tell you, when a visitor walks through the doors and they see, and this is a very loving and caring church, and that is publicly displayed at every worship service, but when they come in and they see that, that was those relationships, and if they were to see David Cummings and Gene Rowell over here with amidst all of the crowd praying for a need in his life or in my life, and they look and they see that we are not just interested in the superficial things, but that we are deeply involved with one another's lives, they say, I want that. How do I get that? 
And they get that by coming to faith in Christ. And who knows? But that our example coupled together with the word of life will not bring them to salvation and bring them into the church. And so you and I, in all that we do, we are to give expression and evidence of the reality that we have committed ourselves to one another and to the church. I want to read two sections in conclusion. This comes from our Constitution and Bylaws. Yes, I am talking to my diabetic wife. The insulin pump still says I'm low, still lying. I ate one of those. I am not low. I want to read about this because it reflects the things about which we have just talked, and these are things to which you have agreed. And it's just a gentle reminder for all of us. The membership of this church shall be composed of persons, A, who are willing for it to be publicly known that they claim Jesus as absolute Lord of their life and trust his work on the cross alone as payment for their sins. B, the membership of this church shall be composed of persons who have been baptized by immersion as a sign of submission to Jesus as Lord and the acceptance of his gift of forgiveness. C, those who desire to enter into a covenant relationship with other believers for the purposes of ministry, of encouragement, spiritual growth, and moral accountability. The covenant, which we read together at our members' meetings and on various occasions, include promises to be regularly involved with other church members in times of worship, Bible study, and prayer. To maintain the determination to search the scriptures for God's answers to life's questions. To be involved in voluntary service and or ministry through the church. To support kingdom work through cheerful biblical stewardship and to be devoted to living in accordance with the purpose, vision, and doctrines of the church. And then in section two, it speaks of the conduct of membership. In the Bible, our Lord has given believers instructions about their relationship with one another and the world. Those instructions include the following. We will attempt to love one another as Jesus has loved us. The congregation will work to maintain an atmosphere where other members of the body are viewed as family to be cared for. Every member will view himself, herself as a minister. The entire congregation, through various gifts and personalities, will be involved in the disciple-making and pastoral ministry endeavors. That was B. And then C. We understand that it is God's purpose for us to attempt to reach people from all ethnic groups in our community and the world. D, this congregation will look for opportunities to meet needs in the lives of those who may have been overlooked by others in order to show compassion and urge them to come to Christ. E, The use of personal possessions and resources for the good of the kingdom and the body is assumed. And then F, 
we expect of one another an appropriate response to the authority of this church's God-appointed leadership, recognizing their duty to administer instruction and corrective discipline should it ever be required. These are the things that we are about because these describe who we are, who we are. Your church membership is vital. It is important. Take it seriously. Take your giftedness and your service seriously. Pour your lives into one another. Become more and more a part of this fellowship as we become more and more alive in Christ. Father, as we depart this place, it is like family going to different places. Lord, as I think upon your shed blood and the new covenant in your blood, I realize that we are related by blood, your blood. A bond that is stronger than any physical or temporary bond on this earth. For our bond to you is eternal. And as individuals, I thank you that we have churches. And I thank you that we have this church whereby we may join together in meeting the needs of others, knowing that in return our needs will be met. But, oh God, make our motive to see others grow up into the fullness of Christ. Lord, let us be faithful to present your truth and to carry the cause of Christ in our very bodies. May we present our bodies to you, living sacrifices, not only when we gather with your church, but moment by moment, day by day. Make us mindful of the needs among our fellowship and beyond those who are suffering. Think of Doug Reese right now. I think of, of Mrs. Harriet. I think of Jason's mom's husband. I think of Marcia suffering much in her body. I think of, of countless others, some that we have mentioned and some that we have not. Oh, Lord, use us in their lives to bring the light of Christ to them. Take us safely now from this, our gathering place, to our homes. And then equip us and empower us through good night's rest.